Good morning. I hope you're having a good week. Um, If you were here last week, you had the treat, as I did watching uh, later on during the week of hearing Ben preach uh, for the first time to our church. Did he not do a great job? All right. And he told me a couple things about that. He said, first off, I didn't do a, you know, it didn't come out good so that you can ask me again. I said, yes, it did. Uh, So we'll see. (laughs) But if you remember, when he opened up the sermon last week, he started out by saying, hey, Rob asked me to preach. And when I opened up the Bible, I got to 1 Corinthians 14, which was on the preaching calendar. And I read 1 Corinthians 14 and learned that it was about speaking in tongues And so we're extending our summer series, and Rob will be back next week. And I thought, what a great way to put that. So I got into 1 Corinthians 14, saw that it was on speaking in tongues in worship. And so we're extending our summer series, and David will be back. (laughs) I'm kidding. (laughs) We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 14 if you have your Bible. Um, We are back in 1 Corinthians. Uh, We started 1 Corinthians in January, and we're slowly walking through this book. We've got these three chapters left in 1 Corinthians, and then we're going to go through 2 Corinthians. uh, And we're going to actually walk through that uh, one chapter a week, pretty much till Christmas. We'll finish 2 Corinthians by the end of the year as well. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, we're going to tackle in two different weeks. So this week and next week, it's 40 verses. That's a little much to handle in one week as we walk through it. And then there is the weight of the beginning of the chapter that really warrants some good discussion. So a couple disclaimers. One, today's going to be a little more teachy than preaching, uh, a little more teaching. And so we're going to walk through it and try to come to an understanding of what the Bible's saying about this particular thing, okay? This, this idea of speaking in tongues and idea of prophecy. We'll get to that in just a moment. And the second thing is this. Um, I want to be sensitive, and I want to approach this with uh, humility. People come from a variety of different church backgrounds, and they bring those experiences. And as we study the Bible, that's the goal. I just want to go to the scriptures. I don't want to speak ill of anyone else's experiences and what you've been through. I just want to say, what does the Bible teach? And you can take with, uh, with you what it says. Okay, so that's a big part. Because pendulums can swing. Meaning, on an issue like this, or issue, the issue of spiritual gifts in general, the pendulum can swing where it's just wide open, any gift, any time, everybody has it. We can just experience and have fun. Or it can swing the other direction, which is the background that our church uh, comes from, which is oftentimes in reaction to that, we say, no, 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 nothing at all. God only does this. And yet, sometimes there needs to be balance. Uh, Sometimes when you come to certain things, here's what I mean by that. I don't want to say what the text doesn't say. But I also want to make sure that we say clearly what the text does say. We want to come to the scriptures. When I think of pendulum swinging, here's what I think of. Maybe you saw this video of a carnival ride in Michigan at the Cherry Festival. This, to me, is what comes to my mind. When a pendulum swings too heavy, you can see the whole ride tipping. Right? Dangerous. These people are on this ride, and it's swinging back and forth, one direction to the other. And it's just risking the whole thing falling apart. It's pretty wild how the whole thing's tipping. All these people had to run over and grab a hold of it so that it didn't tip, Right? And I was informed uh, after I showed this in first service uh, to remind all of you to enjoy the state fair this week. Uh, (laughs) Did not know that. Uh, So that was helpful, wasn't it? When a pendulum swings one direction or the other and you're not anchored, right? You're not anchored. You risk everything kind of coming apart. This is the risk with 1 Corinthians 14. I want to just teach what the text has to say. I want to anchor us. And what does the Bible actually say? In doing so, we're going to take a stance on this. In a culture that multiple people, that's just what the text has led me to. And so here's what, how I want to say this. To the best of my ability, I've studied this passage a lot. 
and we're going to walk through what it has to say. It would benefit us, though, to get caught up a little bit on 1 Corinthians. If you were with us throughout the year, you've learned that Paul came to this city of Corinth to plant this church, and he spent a year and a half, 18 months, with the people in this city, strategically starting a church because he knew the potential influence of a healthy church in a city like Corinth. So he spends 18 months and he disciples these Christians. He leads people, he baptizes a bunch of people. You can read about it in Acts chapter 18 and he gets the church going. And then Paul, after the church is established, moves on to other cities to go plant more churches. In his journey, he gets word that things are not going well in Corinth. The church is not healthy. Things are not uh, going very good. And so what does he do? He sits down and he pens a series of letters to write back to the church. And as we've studied this letter of 1 Corinthians, and you study 2 Corinthians, and you come to understand Paul hits a series of different issues in the church that the church was kind of not doing too well in. And what he does is he, he has this formula. He'll speak of the issue and he'll give the clarity of what he's heard. Here's what I've been told that's going on in the church. And then he takes the gospel, the truth of Jesus, and he applies it to the issue and says, here's how you should be seeing this. Here's how you should, which is a great practice in anything that we do, right? I mean, you just think about any issue that you come up against in life, whether you're single or you're married or you're walking through a a, a difficult season, let's just say in your marriage, and you need to sit down and we're like, hey, here's the issue. Let's take the Bible, let's take God's word and apply it to it. That's what Paul's doing. Here's the gospel, applying it to these issues. And we see he starts out with divisions in the church, the first four chapters. Man, the church is divided and he brings the gospel message of unity to it. And then we had a lot of fun as a church walking through Paul's sexual ethic. (laughs) Talking about, uh, you probably had more enjoyment watching me squirm, but he talks through what the Bible, hey, you're viewing sex and sexual relationships all wrong, and he takes the gospel and applies to it. Marriage, singleness, right? Uh, He gets into the spiritual gifts and and what's going on in the Lord's Supper with communion. And he he, he just addresses all these areas where these followers of Jesus were, were messing up. He says, here's what's going on that's not good, and here's the gospel solution to this problem, and he applies it. We get to chapter 12, and he starts to talk through spiritual gifts. What is the nature of spiritual gifts? How do they work? And how are you guys misusing them? And he takes the gospel and applies it. And then that's 12, 13, and 14. But right between 12 and 14, the way we like to label them is 13. And we label that chapter, Paul didn't do this, but we label it the love chapter. And it's awkwardly placed if you don't understand the context. Side note on context, Ben called me out. So let me clarify for Ben. Context is king when studying, the discipline of actual study, context is king, not context is the Lord of our life. Ben, so write it down. All right. Anyway, when you place 13 in the context of 12 through 14, you realize what Paul's doing. He's talking about the issue that they're having with spiritual gifts is they've made them selfish. They've turned this into this self-centered thing to make them feel better, It's become this self-help movement, which for the life of me, I can't think of a culture where self-help movements are popular, right? But this is what's going on in Corinth. They're taking spiritual gifts and making it all about them. And so Paul addresses that. He says, hey, you're making it all about you when the nature of gifts is when God gives you a spiritual gift, when he blesses you with the ability to do something, it's twofold. The first is that it clarifies the gospel message to the lost and it edifies and builds up the church. Clarifies the gospel message to those who are outside of Jesus You are given a gift to bring the gospel message to them to clarify, or it edifies and builds up those who are already a part of the church. It is not intended to be turned back toward you to make you feel better, look better, have a platform, influence, or somehow be more spiritually mature. That's not what the gifts are given for. So Paul says, 
That means if I have the gift of speaking in the tongues of angels, which he's being sarcastic when he says that, or if I'm able to, with faith, to move mountains, if I've just got all this influence and power, but I don't have love, I'm just making noise. I'm useless, right? It's from that place of these gifts are intended to help you love and take care of other people, not just build yourself up, that Paul begins chapter 14, where he's going to address specifically two spiritual gifts that this church had really misunderstood to their detriment. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit, but the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. Okay, you can kind of see when you read that passage why Ben extended our summer series. <laughs> this is not an easy thing to tackle. Uh, but here's the thing. Here, let me tell you why it's not easy from my perspective. It's not difficult because the Bible's not clear. It's not, right? It is difficult in a sense because it doesn't offer the amount of clarity I would have liked. But here's the thing. I like the way that uh, a preacher named J.D. Greer says this. J.D. Greer says, God gave us everything in the Bible that we need to have. He is not up in heaven thinking, ooh, 1 Corinthians 14. They're not, it's not clear enough. Man, I need to get down there and add something to it. Wait till volume two comes out. Like he, that's not the way that, that God operates. We have everything that we need in this chapter. The, the difficulty in preaching a chapter like this is not found in the content of the words. It's found in the sensitivity to those who you are preaching to. So I'm going to be preaching in a way that I think, to the best of my ability, here's what this text is, is telling us, and, and at the same time try to be respectful for where people come from. Because the text does offer a little bit of wiggle room. This is not an issue, for the most part, that would test a, a fellowship or, or make you think different of a fellow brother or sister in Christ. That said, let's jump into it. We're going to define some terms. The first term we should define if we're going to understand this chapter is tongues. And I like the way that uh, D.A. Carson and Wayne Grudem define tongues. They say it this way. A tongue is a form of prayer and praise that you express to God in a language that you do not understand. Okay? So it's a form of prayer or praise that is expressed to God in a language that you've not been trained in, that you don't understand. That's what the Bible teaches about this. Meaning, based on the context of the entire New Testament, here's the stance that I would take. I don't want to be lack clarity here. I think that when you read the New Testament and the gift of speaking in tongues, it is a spoken, learned language that the person speaking is not trained in. And that the, those who are receiving what is being said can hear it in a language that they are used to. There's examples of this. Acts chapter 2. If you remember, we, we studied through the book of Acts last year. In the very beginning of the book of Acts, there's this day of Pentecost. And on the day of Pentecost, there's this giant gathering of people from all over the world. And then you have the apostles sitting in what we call the upper room. Jesus has already resurrected and ascended, and, and, and now they're left to wait. They're left in this waiting period. Uh, and as they're sitting up in this waiting room, this upper room, waiting for the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes and falls upon them, and they're given this gift of tongues. And what happens is they begin to speak. But in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, look at how the people who are hearing them when I perceive this, Acts chapter 2, verse 5. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven, all over the known world, come together. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment. Well, what bewildered them? 
What is it that threw them off? Because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed by this, they asked, aren't these who are speaking all Galileans, meaning they all speak a certain dialect that we don't understand. So how is it then that each one of us is hearing them in our native language? How is it that when the words leave their mouth, something's taking place that when it hits my ears, I hear it the way that it needs to be heard. Oh, how I wish that was possible in marriage, right? If I speak, somehow my messed up words get translated the proper way. I'm kidding, but this is the example. Now you j- jump down to verse 11. It says this. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. That's key. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? So the apostles speak in their language, but it's heard in the language of the hearers. This is how, biblically speaking, I would define the miracle of speaking in tongues. When this gift is given, they're speaking their language, meaning the spotlight can never be on who? the one speaking, because I'm just talking like a Galilean. I'm just kind of sharing the gospel, and God's doing something to enable you to hear it. Again, I want to come back consistently. The purpose of all spiritual gifts in the Bible is twofold. It helps clarify the message of the gospel to the lost, and it helps to edify and build up those who are already saved. So this gift is clarifying. It has an evangelistic tone to it in Acts chapter 2. It is clarifying the gospel message to those who otherwise would not have been able to understand the dialect of the apostles. See, now we understand kind of where we come from when speaking in tongues. Now, prophecy. Let's define that because that's another one that Paul mentions numerous times just in the first five verses that we looked at. I would define prophecy this way. Prophecy in your New Testament is speaking God's word into a specific situation. And it comes out in three different ways. So prophecy, what I'm saying that it's not, it's not fortune-telling, it's not future predicting. It's not visions. And it's, it's, I would simplify in my study of the New Testament. You may disagree on that, but what I, when I study the Bible, I come to the understanding that prophecy in your New Testament is intended to not get you to predict the future, but to change the way you're living in the here and now. That's its purpose. How does it manifest itself in the New Testament? Well, three ways. The first way is preaching, right? That's the primary way. When somebody takes the word of God and explains it. Now, it's not simply like what we're doing right now, where I would open God's word and and tell you what it means. You can get that from a commentary. It is preaching in a way, you're preaching, explaining the word of God. And in that, that gift taking place, in that happening, God is doing a transformative work through the work of his spirit. It also shows up in the form of what I would say is wisdom. Wisdom meaning I have an understanding of a specific situation but I don't have a chapter and verse to apply to it, right? And so I have this, like, the situation I'm in, and all of a sudden I have clarity on what's going on, and I have a wisdom and insight into this, but there's no chapter and verse division. Hang with me. The third one would be understanding or knowledge, and this is our ability to know and read a situation and to know exactly what to say in the moment to the point where we're like, I don't even know how I knew what to say. How did what I say actually, that's it. But here's the thing. The last, the second two, wisdom and knowledge and understanding, are not the primary ways. They're like... Maybe this is happening. The primary way is preaching. Why do we say that? Because preaching is the one that is dependent upon the word of God. It's God's word. God's established written word. So when you read it into this text now, let's take these definitions and apply them to the text. The Apostle Paul in verse 1 starts out by saying, following the way of love, meaning no matter what the gift that you have is, following the way of love, meaning your focus when you receive this gift is how do I bless other people? How does God intend to give me this gift to be used to clarify the gospel to the lost or to edify and build up those who are already saved? And for the church in Corinth, these two particular gifts, based on this chapter, seem to be a real problem for them. 
And here's why it was a problem for them. They were elevating a spiritual gift over and above other spiritual gifts. They were taking the gift of tongues, and they were adding different meanings to it. This is where it gets hard to understand. They were saying that tongues is this private prayer language that uh, involved uh, speaking something that's not a spoken language that would require this interpreter, and it was getting messy and sloppy. And on top of that, they were interpreting this to mean somehow if I have the gift of tongues, I'm more spiritually mature than the person who does not. And those who speak in tongues more frequently than those who do not somehow are more spiritual than those even if they already have the gift of tongues. And so they're creating a superiority complex out of this gift. And the Apostle Paul comes in and says, no, this is not a proper understanding of what's taking place with this gift. And he begins to offer some clarity to them. Verse 1, he puts the whole context of this discussion in the idea of love, following the way of love, meaning desire these gifts so that you can bless others. He also wants them to to speak. He says, I want everybody to be able to speak in tongues. This is where it gets dangerous in our modern day interpretations. When he says, I wish that you could all speak in tongues, many have taken that to say that everyone should have to speak in tongues in order to prove that they're a Christian. That's a common interpretation in our world. It's, it's not biblical. This is where I want to be very clear to you. The Bible nowhere affirms the idea that in order to prove that you have the seal of the Holy Spirit in your life, that you must manifest the gift of tongues. There's a lot of reasons for that found right in, this, in these chapters. The first one is found in the Apostle Paul when he says, I wish that everyone would have the gift of tongues. He uses the exact same wording in chapter 7. So let's apply the logic. He says in chapter 7, I wish everyone was single and celibate. You want to follow the logic? A lot of us are in trouble. <laughs> it doesn't even apply. You can't do it. But he's using the same wording. So what's he doing? He's not communicating a standard. He's communicating a preference. Well, what's the preference with tongues? Why does he prefer that everyone would have this gift? Here's why. Because everybody, he wants everyone to experience the goodness of God in receiving spiritual gifts. I wish you could all do this. So you'd see it's not that big of a Like, stop. You're making a big deal out of something that's not a big deal. I wish you could all do this. So he communicates that to them. The second way is this. In chapter 12, the Apostle Paul, speaking of spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, makes it very clear when he says this. Not everyone will receive the same gift. So how could we create a standard that everyone must live by if Paul, just a little while sooner than this, had just got done saying not everyone's going to be able to do this? It doesn't fit logically. So if you come across somebody who is teaching that you do not have the Holy Spirit living in you unless you manifest the gift of tongues, which is already a misinterpretation of the way that tongues are interpreted in the Bible to begin with. It is not a babbling, incoherent language that only you and God understand. It is a spoken, learned language that God uses the way that God wants to use it. But if they then take that and say, not only is it that, but you must have that gift in order to have the Holy Spirit living in you, I would caution you to distance yourself from anchored in the Bible. It's, a, it's, a, it's an important thing to be aware of. Now Paul continues by giving a couple different illustrations to really help us understand this gift even more. Verse, uh, verse 6, he says this, Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and I speak in tongues the way that you're saying that tongues are, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? So what he's saying is, what good is it if I come to you and you can't understand what I'm saying? What good would it be if I stood up in a predominantly English-speaking church and preached my entire 
sermon in a different language that you didn't understand, it would not be beneficial to you. And remember what the purpose of spiritual gifts is. It starts out with, how does this clarify the gospel to the lost? And how does it edify and build up those who are already saved? That's the purpose of having a gift. And so if your gift does nothing but benefit you, you're probably not seeing that gift the way that God wants you to. So that's what Paul says. Now, verse 7, here's an example. He says, even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as a pipe or a harp, how will anyone know what is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? So if I play music, but nobody can understand what's being played, it all sounds the same, there's no distinction in the notes, how could it be a blessing to anybody else? I might stand up there and think, I'm so good at this, right? And I'm like, it'd be like what Ben just did for us with the guitar. He led us in worship. Now, contrast that with me grabbing the guitar and standing up here and trying to do what he did. It's not going to happen. You're going to hear it and you oh. And if I'm convinced that what I'm doing is beneficial, it's going to take someone with a little bit of courage to come to me and say, hey, like, no, that's not benefiting anybody at all. And the purpose of you being able to get up here and lead us in worship is that it would benefit us and lead us in worship. See, so he says music. The next illustration, verse 8, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So if you're getting ready to go to war in those days, you would blow the trumpet in a distinct way that all of your army would be aware of. When they hear the trumpet played that way, they go to war. But what Paul is saying is like, you know this, if we go to war and you're all ready for battle, but you play it and not everybody understands what they're listening for and it doesn't sound the same and, and, and maybe only the person blowing the trumpet understands that it's time for war and then they get ready to go to war and they run out on the battlefield by themselves because the army wasn't prepared. See, if you, if you understand it to be only between you and God, again, it's not clarifying the gospel or edifying the church. Verse 9, so it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you're saying? You'll just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager for the gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in the gifts that build up the church and not yourself. Not yourself. So he's saying this idea of barbarian, this is the way that the Romans would address uh, foreigners. They would say that when they came, they were barbarians. Why? Because they couldn't understand their language. It was blah, 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 and they would just make fun of them. And so what Paul is saying is when you get up there and you're just making noises and no one understands the language and no one, there is no interpreter. You can only interpret a language that's known by the interpreter, right? An example of this, D.A. Carson is a New Testament scholar. And he said that this really clicked for him when he had a very close friend, another scholar attended church that was promoting the idea that he needed to speak in tongues to participate and to, to have the Holy Spirit. Well, he didn't have a tongue that he knew of. And so all he knew was to, he started quoting the gospel of John in the Greek, because he was a Greek scholar. Well, then someone stood up to interpret it, and as they stood up to interpret what he was saying, not knowing Greek, they interpreted anything except the Gospel of John. It was not the Gospel of John being interpreted, so it was of no benefit to anybody, and it clicked. It can only be a language understood by the interpreter. This idea that we just, it's the pendulum swinging so far the other way. Now, that is not to say that we don't have emotions. See, the Apostle Paul continues in here. Look at how he continues. Uh, he, he, he goes on to explain, I don't want to divorce my heart. He says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you do, which is a great line. It's like a mic drop moment. Like, hey, before we go any further, let me just explain to you this gift that you are all excited to have and think that you're better than everyone else for having. I do it way more than all of you. And he drops the mic. He says, but, but in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words, five words that everybody in the room can understand 
to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. 10,000 words manifesting a language that I didn't learn. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children in regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. He says, it's time to grow up. This idea of spiritual maturity, I heard a preacher while I was on break explain it this way. He said, you would never let your little toddler go into the kiddie pool at a public pool if there was a 50-year-old man with floaties on playing around in there. Like, it's super weird, right? You would never allow that to happen. You're never going to, oh, yeah, yeah, go play with that uh, strange old man playing. Like, it just doesn't work. So if you've been a Christian for a certain amount of years, it's time to get out of the kiddie pool. It's not appropriate to be there anymore. He's saying it's time for us to grow up and see things the way that the scriptures, not just the way that we want, not just the way that we're feeling. So he continues in here. In the law, it is written, with other tongues and through their lips, the foreigners, I will speak to this people. But even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues then are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Meaning, the gift of tongues is to benefit those outside the church so that they can hear the clarity of the gospel message in the language that they know. That's it. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. So the proclamation of God's word is for those who are in the church, what we're doing right now. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and someone comes in as an unbeliever, will they not say that you are already out of your mind? Like, look, non-Christians have a hard enough time with the lingo that we use as Christians already. And we have to be extra sensitive to that. We come in and, and someone hears words like the, even the idea of preaching as opposed, as opposed to talk, talk or a, a speech, which I can't understand. If you're giving a talk or a speech, you're not preaching, right? It's preaching and that's the word. But we sanctification, justification, the idea of fellowship. That's like a very church word. And we, we already have to be sensitive. So if they came in here and we were all doing something else, they'd come in and say, fellowship, what is that? Oh, now you're making noises. Okay, I don't understand what's going on and they're out of here. It doesn't, make it, it doesn't benefit them. The gift, when God uses it, as rarely as he uses it. And I give room for that. The text doesn't say that God never does this. I give room for it. I've never seen it. I've never experienced it. It's not in my experience. But when the gift is used, it is a spoken language clarifying the gospel message to the unbelievers. Verse 24, but if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they're convicted of sin and brought under judgment by all, as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. When God's word is preached and it's understood, it brings about conviction. So let's review this just a little bit. We've defined tongues, biblically speaking, to the best of my ability as a spoken language, the pendulum can swing, though. In our effort to define it that way, we can divorce ourselves of emotion. The movement we come from can oftentimes say there is no emotion when it comes to uh, worship and stuff. It is all logic. It is all understanding, and that is it. And then we can go the other way, and it's all emotion. And, and yeah, Paul says, hey, I, when I pray, I want to pray with my heart and my mind. When I sing, he says in our passage, I want to sing with both my heart and my mind. What he's saying is I don't want to divorce what I feel from what I understand. Meaning, if I'm alone in my prayer closet, Paul says this, if you're alone and you're praying and you're speaking this heavenly language that you're claiming to have and you don't even understand what you're saying, of what benefit is it to you personally? See, I wrestled with this. Be, be transparent with you. I did. I wrestled with this. Because there is, the text doesn't explicitly come out and say this doesn't happen. And yet the context really seems to support the idea that even when you're by yourself, an incoherent language that you've never understood is of no benefit to you. Why? Because Paul says, even when I pray, I want my mind and my heart to work together. I want my mind and my heart to work together. They have, they're in sync. I, should, I can feel it. I can feel things. Feelings are okay, but not divorced from my thought life and understanding what's going on. Which means when you're having an exciting, worshipful moment, 
Right? This is why in our movement, young people, oftentimes when they go to college, uh, they, they want to leave, right? Because they go and they experience a church where it is feeling and they get moved in this worship experience. I think that's awesome and it's good. Like you should feel it. We should do better at that. We should do better at that. But the idea that you're just going to come out and when someone comes out and they say, man, worship just moved me. I'm so moved. My question usually that I want to ask, I don't always do this because it's rude and I'm, I can be a jerk and I don't want to do that. My question sometimes is, like, so what, what, what did God teach you though? What did, what did you learn about the word of God? What did the word of God transform in you while you felt that? Because you can't divorce the two. Likewise, when someone comes out and says, man, I just wish we wouldn't sing so much and we could just do more sermons. Like, uh, you need to feel that the Holy Spirit actually still moves in the world today. And he still has transforming work that he's doing. It's okay to feel it, but don't divorce that from your mind. This is why the two things I want to sum up with in 12 through 14 of this. The pendulum swing. You can apply this to any area of your life. When we let a pendulum swing too far one direction or too far the other direction, we compromise uh, the foundation if we're not anchored in God's word. So let me give you a couple, just one illustration of that. For me, I'm a nerd, okay? Big time. I love reading. I, I like to read books. I like to listen to lectures and podcast sermons. So like when I'm in the car, Almost 10 times out of 10, right, it would be a lecture. If I can find a lecture online, I'm going to listen to it. I'm just going to let, and my brain, some of you are like, oh, most boring car ride ever, right? Like, that's just the way my brain works. This has challenged me to be willing to allow my prayer life and my worship life to be including a little bit more feeling. So here lately, I can drive down the road and put worship music on and just allow God to move in that moment a little bit more often than I have in the past because I don't want the pendulum to swing so drastically one direction or the other. Okay, so that's, a, that's an important part of understanding where we're coming from this. The other part of this is this, gifts. All spiritual gifts, and I think we can make the argument for your physical gifts, whatever you've been given, has that twofold benefit. How is this going to help someone who doesn't know Jesus understand the message of the gospel better? And how does this bless the church, my brothers and sisters in Christ that I am walking in life with? So apply that to any part of your life. If you've been given a spiritual gift, again, I'm going to apply it to my life. It's super weird and uncomfortable to do this, but I'm going to go for it. I feel like God has given me the gift of preaching. Okay, it's been affirmed through the leadership of the church, through many of you. And don't know, I know your jokes. He gives people differing levels, all right? I know where I'm at, okay? You don't need to remind me, all right? But either way, he's given that gift. So when I wake up in the morning, what is the purpose of the gift that he's given me? Is it, whew, I can get a platform with this one. Get a lot of followers. A lot of people could listen to my words. I can get power, influence, impact. This kid, I could really twist this thing just a little bit to make it a little bit more about me. No. According to 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, it's, okay, God, you want me to do this, and oftentimes I don't want to do it, but you've given me this gift. How can I use this gift to help clarify the gospel to the lost and help build up and edify the church? Apply that to any gift you have. Imagine with me, just for a minute as we finish up, how this would change your family dynamic, right? If every gift, physical or spiritual, all right? I know I'm stretching it a little bit with the physical, but bear with me. Every gift that your family received, that the conversation around the dinner table was not, let's use finances just as an example. You get some sort of a monetary gift you weren't ex expecting, a commission check that, oh, I didn't think about that one or whatever. Someone blesses you. And instead of saying, man, we got this check, let's put the pergola on the back porch, let's get ready for the swimming pool, let's improve this thing, I watched Fixer Upper, and let's, you, you know what I mean? Like, I'm, I'm a million percent guilty of it, okay? 
But what if instead our first reaction was, how can we help advance the gospel to lost people? And does anyone at New Hope, anyone in our church family need anything? How can we bless them? And then and only then we say, okay, now what can we do? Like, how, how does God want it to bless us? Think about your spiritual gifts. What if spiritual gifts became more than an online assessment that helped you clarify your career? What if a spiritual gift was far more than you just learning this little thing about yourself that you could then grab the Enneagram or some other self-help thing and apply to it and say, ah, spiritually speaking, I'm like an eight with a wing, whatever, and, and I'm, I've been gifted. Like, what if it was more than that? What if God had given you a spiritual gift he wanted you to take seriously? What, what if he wanted you to sit down and spend some time with him and ask those two questions? God, you've gifted me. He's gifted every one of us. The text is clear, 12 to 14. Every single person has access to spiritual gifts if the Holy Spirit's living in you. If you're a baptized believer in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit living in you, and you have the access to spiritual gifts. He has gifted you. Why? Because it's the purpose. What if you, in your prayer time, say, God, you've given me a gift, and I want to make sure that I help clarify the gospel to someone who's lost. Who's that someone? When's the last time you prayed for a lost person? When's the last time you wept over your neighbors who don't know Jesus and their eternal fate without him? And then you stopped and you said, hey, my church, I need to serve. That doesn't mean come and do, look, there's, everything serving is awesome. But serving is not this lifelong commitment to the prison of like show up at the church and do this thing that you hate doing. That's not it. How can I serve the body of Christ with the gifts that God has given to me? You know what I think? I think that would change your entire family dynamic. I think it would change everything for us. Why? Because I think Paul is telling us, stop letting things become so self-centered. And just pause long enough to consider what God might want you to do with the many blessings he's poured out on your life. And then see where he takes you. Let's pray. Father, you have blessed us. And I echo the often uh, prayed words of my father-in-law when he says, you are the source of everything good in our lives. You really are. love that song we sang, that we can see the evidence of your goodness all over our lives. It's everywhere. You're so good. And you challenge us in certain ways, and you, your word is living and active. It continues to speak to us. And as it does, God, we, we just have so much to learn in so many areas where we need to grow. We live in a culture that justifies selfishness in every arena of life. It is a battle to remain selfless, but it is a calling. And so as you gift us with spiritual gifts, the ability to do things that we would otherwise not be able to do, would you help us to have the proper focus on how to help those who are outside of Christ, those who don't know your son Jesus, help us to clarify the message that we're speaking to them. And give us a heart for our church family and our brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world as we consider what to do with the gifts that you've given to us, how best to serve, edify, and build them up. And may your church be blessed because of it. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close out, I was preaching this in first service, and a text came to my mind. And I thought, man, as we lead into communion, I kind of want to pivot. Because there's this beautiful passage in Philippians chapter 2 
the Apostle Paul writes this letter to a town called Philippi. And in this letter, he's write, he writes to them and he gives them instruction on Christian living. And most scholars will agree, if you, if you translate this book from the original language, there's this little passage in chapter two that is a little weird because he's teaching and he's teaching and he's teaching and then he like stops. And he has what we would call a hymn almost, a hymn of praise. It's as if he's teaching them about the wonders of God and it, he gets overwhelmed by them. And he just stops for a minute and pauses long enough to just praise Jesus for who he is and what he's done. And then he gets back to writing. It's this fascinating little passage. It's one of my favorites in all of scripture. So as we prepare for communion, I kind of want us to pause long enough to just stop and consider in the midst of all of the distractions that are going on in your life, just stop and consider how wonderful and worthy of worship our Savior really is. And let me read this text over you as you prepare your heart to spend some time with him, thanking him for the greatest gift of all, the salvation he's offered us through his sacrifice. Let me read this. In your relationships with one another, have the mindset, the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God, something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even cross death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of what he did for us, God has exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father and all God's people said.